You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning and welcome to our 9 a.m. Sunday gathering. My name is Josh. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer. I want to welcome you. We believe that when we gather around God's Word and take the sacrament together of communion, that God meets with us in a spiritual way and nourishes us as his body. So we believe Sundays are incredibly important. We also believe that it's important to be uh, in community together. And so just a few weeks ago, our community groups, what we call gospel communities, launched. And if you have not connected to a gospel community, I would encourage you to find uh, Pastor Rick Bowers, find one of our staff. You can talk to me, and we'd love to help you get connected to a gospel community. It's a great way to nourish uh, at the ground level, our relationships with one another and our relationship with Christ. So would love to help you get connected. Um, over the past few months here on Sundays, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you've been tracking along with us, you've learned that first the church in Corinth was quite the crazy, sinful, messy, wayward, often difficult group of people, um, often more influenced by Corinth than Christ. But the Apostle Paul, throughout the letter, continues to recognize them as saints, as a church of God, and he writes them not in hopes of destroying them or condemning them, but of seeing renovation in their church. That's the theme of this sermon series, is renovation. And room by room, Paul has been going throughout the mess and the mold and the, and the you know, poorly designed walls, and he's been remodeling and reforming this church addressing issues of division, which we're going to look at more today, of sexuality, of dietary questions about what we can and can't eat, of idolatry, of last week the role of men and women, and even how that role had seeped into disrupt their worship. And here in chapter 11, as we continue forward, Paul is going to move further into the problem that they're facing in the context of worship as, they look, as he looks at their partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now imagine if we, as a congregation, received a letter, and in that letter it told us that when we gather, it's actually worse uh, than if we wouldn't gather, right? That would be pretty harsh rebuke. That's essentially what Paul is writing to them, is that when they gather for the Lord's Supper, it's actually doing more harm than it's doing good. And here's the major issue we're going to look at in the text today about the Supper, The sacred meal that was meant to signify and seal that Christ is unified to us and to his body was corrupted by division. A sign meant to uh, renew and remind us of our communion with Christ and his church had turned into another painful reminder of the church's division and dysfunction. And here's, we're going to look at the text in three main movements this morning. We're going to look at the problem of division, verses 17 through 22. We're going to look at the tradition of the supper reformed, verses 23 through 26. And then finally, we're going to see a warning and a welcome in 27 through 34. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into the text together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you this morning trusting in faith that you meet us when we gather, that although we come in here with hearts that are heavy, hearts that are tired, hearts that are doubting, hearts that are struggling, maybe hearts even that are encouraged, that you meet us and you have grace for us. Lord, help us this morning to see 
how gracious of a Father you are in giving us the sacred meal of communion. Lord, my prayer is that we would never take again without having the eyes of our faith enlightened to see the, the fullness of what you offer in this sacred supper. I pray for each person here this morning that you meet us where we are and that you nourish our souls to further love and serve you. It is in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The problem of division. Let's jump back into verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And believe it in, and believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul starts off with some harsh words. He says, your practice of the Lord's Supper is doing more damage than it is good. Why? Well, I imagine Paul, who's we learned earlier in Corinthians, he's getting his reports of the Corinthian church from Chloe and her people, or his people. I can't remember what Chloe is. Um, but he's getting his reports from Chloe. He's likely in Ephesus. I don't think he's in jail at this point, but I imagine him in Ephesus. I guess Chloe's people, a group of Chloe and her people come up, and, and they're telling, you know, they've told him all these reports of Corinthians and all these crazy sins, and Paul's just like, oh gosh, oh gosh. And, and I imagine Paul asking, you know, well, tell me about their worship, right? And, and, uh, and how, how are they doing with the Lord's Supper? And and they're like, well, you know, uh, actually, Paul, when they come together, there's a few of the people that they go first, and uh, they kind of just grab all the bread. And, and a few weeks ago, in fact, they ate it all, and there was new converts who had come into the supper that week, and, and they didn't even get any bread. And, uh, and also, they, uh, they kind of got into the wine, and maybe a couple of them were drunk, you know? I imagine Paul just sitting there. I don't know if he's sitting there. I'm sure he had to sit down when he heard this. The church that he's planted, that he's poured out into, and just kind of putting his hand on his head and going, oh my goodness. Like, what? What's going on here? What are we doing? Right? Like, imagine if we were taking, and you were at the end of the line, and you saw someone at the beginning who's just, ah, you know, taking all the bread, and we, don't have, we can't get drunk on our juice, but, you know, we're somehow, and, and you're just like, what in the world? The meal that's meant to symbolize and signify our union with Christ and our union with each other has become a mockery. And it's been divided by the same sin that was running rampant in the community. Um, and sometimes you wonder, like, as we're reading this letter, I, I wonder at times, like, should Paul just write these people off? <laughs> like, this is just insane. What is going on here? And I'm sure Paul had his moments but we know from earlier in the letter that Paul possessed the love of a spiritual father. And he saw these Corinthians, as wayward as they were, as a church of God and as saints. Now, I, I want to give you a quick aside of something I think we can learn from Paul in our day. It's tempting in our age to see something in the church misused or abused 
and to simply swing away from that, right? Some people have done this with the Lord's Supper in ways. You've seen it maybe uh, over, super, made it too, too superstitious, right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Or maybe with spiritual gifts, which we get to in chapter 12, you've heard a little too much tongues and a little crazy prophecy, and you say, you know what? Just give me the Bible, right? Just words on a page. I can understand that. Maybe with sexuality and gender, we've swung one way or the other And I want us to remember the whole theme of this series and this letter is renovation. It's renovation. Another word we could use here is reformation. Always reforming. It's why we love here the reformed tradition. There's this attitude of we always need to be reformed and reforming as the church. And ultimately, we trust that God is a renewing father. And his heart of renewal is passed on to those who represent him. Here, in this case, the Apostle Paul. And here, this church family, this kind of committed fatherly, motherly love does not discard something good simply because it is misused. And tragically, there are many people who have left the church, or maybe you're feeling the temptation to leave the church because of some of its practices or because of some of its ways or because some things have been mistaught or misused. But I want to challenge you with this. What if we took a posture of reformation and remodeling rather than simply deconstructing and destroying? Churches need the kind of fathers who will love them through their crazy who will love them in their waywardness, in their difficult seasons. Now, Paul has certainly done some tearing down. He's certainly had to speak some hard things, even in our text today. But it was always in the service of building up the body of Christ. And Paul's going to do this very same thing with the Lord's Supper. He reminds them of the true tradition, the true meaning of the Supper, the true purpose of it in this text. Let's look at verses 23 through 26. You'll recognize these words. You might have them memorized. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We quote this verse. We've quoted it almost every week throughout this entire year when we go to the table and take the Lord's Supper. And I think it's important for us to slow down for a minute and kind of understand and unpack some of the meaning of the supper behind these verses that we say week after week. And so I want to give you a little bit of a summary, my definition, and this is, this is a run-on sentence, but I'm going to break it down, okay? So um, it, our, the Lord's Supper, as Paul unpacks, as we see in the rest of Scripture, is a rehearsal, in a sense, of the Last Supper given by Jesus himself to be ritually observed in the worship of the church as a sign and seal of gospel grace. Now let's just break that down into sign and seal of gospel grace. Um, as a sign of gospel grace, what does that mean about the supper? Well, there's a rhythm throughout all the scriptures of something I would call remembering by reenacting. 
remembering by reenacting. If you think back to the Passover that first happened when Israel was in slavery in Egypt and they go through this Passover meal, what did Moses do when they got in the wilderness and observed the Sabbath? He had them reenact this moment. Not exactly as it happened. They didn't go back to Egypt, but they reenacted in a ritualistic way. Why? To remember what God had done for them. You see this in some of the feasts that Israel celebrated in the Old Testament. They would reenact an act of God in the past so that they could remember it in the present. And this is different than simply speaking. There's one mode of grace God gives through the speaking of the word, and that's part of it. But also the reenactment involves the whole body. You're going through motions to remember something that God did in the past. And the Lord's Supper and baptism for that are sacraments that, that serve as uh, uh, remembering by reenactment. Think of baptism for just a minute, uh, although that's a different topic. Baptism, what do, how do we symbolize that here at Redeemer? We go under, symbolize, it's an action. It's not just, we don't just pronounce words over someone, but there's an action. You're, you're buried with Christ, raised with him in newness of life, right? And there's something that happens when we act something out in the world that helps us helps us uh, understand it and take it in. It engages our body and our mind more than just when we say words. And that's part of what the Lord's Supper is. It's an ongoing reenactment that helps us remember the gospel of grace. Now, what are we remembering in the Lord's Supper? Well, at its core, we're remembering the words that Paul says here, that this is Christ's body, which was given for you. His body, which was broken so that you who were broken could be one with him and one with his body. There's a, there's a vertical aspect of the supper, and there's a horizontal aspect of the supper. Uh, it also is symbolic of the new covenant in my blood, which we recite every week, um, which represents the blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross so that you could be forgiven and welcome into God's family. All of this is done in remembrance of Christ. And it's not, again, a, a, reen, a reenactment is not the exact same thing as going back and, and doing a crucifixion uh, you know, pageant, nothing wrong with those, but it's a ritual that calls to remembrance what God has done for us. One reformer called the Lord's Supper a visual sermon. Every week you're reminded by hearing, seeing, touching, tasting and smelling that Christ's body was broken so that you could be whole. His blood was shed so that you could be forgiven and welcomed. One Christ, one body, upward union, outward communion. It engages our mind and body. And, and here's one more thing. I could go on for days on this, but it also signifies not only the past, but the present, what Christ is doing among us, and also it looks forward to the future that one day we are going to feast with Christ for all of eternity. Now, it's also a seal of spiritual union. And if what we just talked about was all that the Lord's Supper meant, I would make a case that that's pretty important that we do it every week and just it being a visual sermon and engaging our mind and our body is a, is a reason enough to do it week after week. But I believe that it's not only our mind and our body that the Lord's Supper engages, but it also engages the soul. Did you know that you're not just a hunk of meat with the brain walking around? That you have an immaterial soul part of you, you are a spiritual creature, both body and soul, 
And God wants to nourish not only your body with bread, but your spirit with the bread of life. You see, just as we've talked about in Corinthians, the dangers of idolatry, where there are physical actions taking place that engage spiritual forces that Paul is going to say might seem like they're these attractive other gods, but actually they're demonic. Like, don't mess around with that. Just as there's spiritual encounters in the negative way, with right worship ordained and given by God's word, there are encounters with the beautiful Christ. Not just something that happens in my head, but a spiritual encounter with the living and risen Jesus. And this is, happens when we worship as a church, when we come together. God's promised that when we come together around the word and sacrament, he's going to meet us. But it's especially true when we take the Lord's Supper. Now, let me clarify this a bit from some of the misuses that might be popping into your head of the Lord's Supper. Perhaps if you have a Catholic background, you've got some baggage with the Lord's Supper. And we want to say, man, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we do differ. We do differ with their position on the Lord's Supper because some see the bread and the cup um, as actually becoming the body and blood of Christ. This is the doctrine of transubstantiation. And there's such a literal understanding that they believe that the real presence of Christ, his physical, resurrected, crucified body, comes and, and, and becomes that in us. And there's this weird mystery, and, and I won't go into all that doctrine, but essentially they're kind of dragging Christ out of heaven into the elements of the bread and the wine. And we respect them and we love them, but we disagree with this view because we think that it can become superstitious and ultimately, at times, it can kind of it can lead to the elements actually being the endpoint of our worship, not a means to point us to something greater. But with that, I also do believe the Lord's Supper is not merely us remembering that there's something happening beyond the intellect when we go to the table and take. Um, John Calvin, who, by the way, if you haven't, you know, I don't agree with everything Calvin says, but on the Lord's Supper, there's nobody better. That's my biased opinion. Um, he says this, and he's speaking again here of more the Catholic view of, at his time uh, against it. He says, to them, Christ does not seem present unless he comes down to us, as though if he should lift us to himself, we should not just uh, as much enjoy his presence. For if the mystery is heavenly, there is no need to draw Christ to earth that he may be joined to us. Let me say this in a more plain way. In the supper, it's not that we drag Christ who is risen and reigning in a resurrected body. We don't drag him out of heaven into the elements of bread and wine, but rather through faith, when we approach these simple elements, Christ lifts us into the heavenly places. Don't you know that's what Paul says in Ephesians when he says, you have been raised and seated with Christ. And, and I'll tell you this, when you go about your ordinary life and you're just working and raising kids and, and sinning and struggling, like you, it doesn't feel like you're raised and seated with Christ. But God gave us these simple aids of bread and the cup so that when we come to them, eyes open with faith, we would be lifted into the heavenly places with him. And we wouldn't just imagine an encounter with Christ, but he would truly be spiritually present to us. When we come to the table with the eyes of faith, these simple elements of bread and juice lift our hearts to the spiritual truth and reality that we are one with Christ. 
and therefore one with his bride, the church. He is truly with us by the Holy Spirit. We might say this is true spiritual presence. Now, why these simple signs? Why did God, why not just speak that? Right? Like, why not just preach that? Preaching is an incredibly important part of our worship. Why these signs? I believe God gave us these signs, and many others in the church would say God gave us these signs because we are, in fact, embodied creatures. And for me, and I would guess for you, imagining the invisible God who dwells in the spiritual realm, which we cannot see, is a challenge. And God is so gracious that when we're on this journey, Calvin actually puts it like this, until we obtain the status of angels, we need these aids. We need this assistance. We need these clues and hints and reminders that although you cannot see it, this is what is true. This is the ultimate reality. Christ, risen and reigning. And guess what, brother and sister, you're there with him. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism uh, explain this beautiful truth about the Lord's Supper. It says, how does the, Holy Commun- how does the Holy Supper remind us and assure you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and is all, and all, in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves. Think about that this morning as you go to the table. And taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord given to given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. When we take the Lord's Supper, there's more going on than just us acting. That is a beautiful part of it, reenacting and remembering. That is a beautiful, important part of it. But there's more going on than just what meets the eye. Sometimes when we come and take, our feelings align with what is true. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you experience this when you're singing a song, when you're coming to the table, and you, you see that Christ is going to meet you there. And yet there's other days where that feels like 100,000 miles away, and you're just coming feeble and trusting. that This feels like nothing. But I know that I am more than just this body and these feelings, and that Christ is feeding my soul, and I need this. By the way, that's a case for why you need to be here week after week, not just when you feel like it or not just when you get an experiential high because God is doing things in this gathering that you can't see or feel. And I think if the Holy Spirit were to pull back the curtain, if we could see with spiritual eyes what happens when we gather, what happens when we go to the table, the spiritual realities, the heavenly, perhaps there's choruses of angels. You know, I don't want to get too crazy, but I'm imagining chorus of angels, Jesus himself on the throne. If we could see what's spiritually going on when we come to the table, our hearts would erupt with joy. That's why God gave us all these aids in worship so he could help us imagine what is actually true. He could stir our affections to see this is the reality. 
John Calvin, uh, who is very big on the word and on clarity, says this. He says, if anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, he's talking about the spiritual nourishment, the Christ's true spiritual presence. I am not ashamed to confess that it is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend, one of the smartest men to ever live, or my words to declare, one of the most articulate men to ever live. And to speak more plainly, I rather experience than understand it. This is John Calvin. A sign of gospel grace, a seal of spiritual nourishment. Our passage concludes verses 27 through 33 with a warning and a welcome. Let's close with that here. So then, brothers, actually, let me go back to 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, so, he, uh, so eat, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drink, uh, eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. First, let's deal with the warning. Um, the immediate issue in this text Sometimes this text is used to kind of get you to soul search until you find every nook and cranny of sin before you come to the table. What is the issue here in the text? The issue here in the text is that there's division outside the church that is invading its worship. It's showing up in ugly ways, right? Some people are hoarding the food and taking all the wine and getting drunk and making a mockery of this sacred meal. That's the issue. That's the failure of them to discern the body. They're being selfish. The very meal that's meant to show Christ's sacrificial giving is actually being taken by people who are selfish. You see the irony there? The disconnection? And Paul says kind of eerily that there's some consequences to them taking in an unworthy manner. When you come to the table and you aren't discerning the body of the Lord, when you have not examined if you're coming by faith, there are consequences. Now, I want to give you two simple explanations, and we could talk about this for hours, but let me give you two simple things. First, it's very possible that the physical actions of, that were on display in the supper were representative of how they were living life together in the larger community, and that there were some who, just as they did in the supper, hoarded all the food and resources, perhaps this was more rich in the church, left others in the church hungry and needy. And he's saying because of this sin of greed and selfishness, there's others in the church that go without, and they're sick. They don't have enough nourishment. Right? That, that's one explanation we could look at here. Another explanation, which I think they're probably both somewhat true, is that when you make a mockery of something so beautiful that God has given, when you take something so precious as His very presence feeding and nourishing you, when you just come haphazardly to the table having no faith and taking and making a mockery of it, there are spiritual consequences. Perhaps in his mercy, God was giving spiritual consequences to lead some of these people to repentance. 
that when you play around and you're just coming up here and you're like, ah, oh, just go through the motions, whatever, and you're taking communion and yet you're living a life totally opposite of what that means, there could be consequences. In fact, if you live your life without regard for Christ and his sacrifice, just kind of go through it, ultimately one day you will, whether you get them here or in the future, you will face the consequence of your sin. And it could be that God's just giving some grace to discipline them because he loves them. There's more we could say there, but we got to keep moving. Finally, the passage ends with a helpful instruction for the Lord's Supper, an invitation. When you come, wait for one another. Examine your heart. We could expand this to say that when we come to the table, we should come in faith. Faith, trusting that, hey, I'm thinking about what this means. I'm thinking about my own life and relationship to Christ. And if, if there is sin, I need to confess and live in a way that's faithful to what this meal says. If there is division in my heart with others in the body, maybe I need to deal with that before I go to the table. If I've yelled at my spouse all month and unrepentant of that, maybe I don't just need to go haphazardly through a motion or a ritual because really the power in the ritual is faith. And I need to examine my heart and go in a way that represents the meal, not just going through the motions, not coming with superstitions like it's some magic juice or bread that's going to just save us, not coming to be seen by others, right? If you don't, oh, so-and-so didn't go take communion today. Did you see that? <laughs> they must be living in sin. Um, not coming to get full of bread, although sometimes this bread is very good, uh, is often maybe too good. No, I don't know. You know, uh, that's a different conversation. Um, but coming by faith. And perhaps for some of us, the correction this morning is maybe it is, in fact, that you've been living in outright sin, and you need to take a moment before we come this morning and just say, is, is the action, the ritual I'm about to go into, am I entering it by faith? Or do I need to actually just talk to the God who's given this right now? Do I need to confess some sin and go as a needy sinner in need of God's mercy? Maybe others of you, it's, it's not, not a big sin, but you've just kind of gotten the habit. We are creatures of habit, and you're just going forward, and you just don't think about it at all. You're just kind of like, yeah, bread, juice. And, and I will say God works beyond that, but why would we want to miss out on not coming in faith, on not coming knowing that even though it's just a person, regular person like you, handing you that bread, that's as if Christ's very hand is reaching out to you this morning. It's as if his very blood is being given to you this morning to declare that you are mine. You are cleansed and you are welcome and seated with me. Why wouldn't we come considering that truth and that reality? And so with that this morning, we're going to move right into taking the Lord's Supper we're going to have two stations at the front of the room as we do each week. We'll have two servers, one holding out the bread, Christ's body given for you. One holding out the cup, the cup of the new covenant in Christ's blood to you. If you need gluten-free, you can let your server know. But before we go to the table, I want to give you just 30 seconds to, to, to do what we just heard, to examine your heart, not to see if you're worthy. You're not worthy, newsflash. But to examine, am I going in a way that's consistent with what this means? 
and to just consider the beauty of what you're about to do. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds, then I'm going to read the words of institution again, and then the table's going to be open and we'll take it together. Let me give you 30 seconds to just talk to the Lord. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and uh, eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church family, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let us come to the table in faith and feast upon him. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.